Hello and welcome to the very latest Forever Blue podcast. I'm Ian Cheeseman and today the podcast is slightly different than normal. Um, there are going to be a whole lot of voices, including two former City players, Jim Melrose and Colin Hendry, that you'll hear from. And we're going to discuss two different subjects. Just before we get into the detail, I'd just like to give a big thank you to Charles Louis Mortgage Advisors, who are part of the Charles Louis Group, who are the sponsors of this podcast. Without them, there wouldn't be a podcast. So thanks very much to them. Uh, they're an advisory business. They advise, they advise on development of finance, mortgage advice and estate agency. They started out life as a simple mortgage company offering buy-to-let, first-time buyer and moving home mortgages. But Charles Louis now provides support for the whole property transaction process, including an independent estate agent and an expert commercial finance team and renowned mortgage team. So if you want to get in contact with them, uh, their website is charleslouis.co.uk. Dave is the man who's in charge. He's a big City fan. So therefore, if you ring them up and say you heard about them on Forever Blue, uh, first of all, they'd be delighted to hear that, I'm sure, uh, but may well look after you even better. So if you need any advice, any help on buying mortgages, all that sort of thing, give them a call. Now, the two subjects we're going to talk about on this podcast are, later on, the return of football to normality. Is it ever going to happen? In what form is it going to happen? How are you going to feel when you go back if there are limited numbers? All that sort of subject is the second half of this podcast. But to begin with, the subject is VAR. Now, VAR is such a contentious issue that when I talk to people online, as I do quite a bit, about how do you feel about the current situation of being kept out of games and will it put you off, which, as I say, is a subject we'll talk about later on, uh, VAR always crops up and people say, you know what, it's going to be VAR that stops me going to games. So we're going we're gonna to spend the next half an hour now getting people's views, lots of different opinions from all over the place. There's an American guy who gives his opinion. There are some of the members of the Forever Blue squad that you hear from regularly and there are one or two other people who I've spotted online talking on the subject who are also going to give their views, as well as, I say, Colin Hendry, former City centre-half, and Jim Melrose, former City striker. So, first subject then on this week's podcast, VAR. VAR just drives me insane. Um, it started with... Were it, were it last, I'm rubbish for dates. Were it last season, I think, when uh, we played Tottenham, and it was right at the last second, weren't it, of the game? Um to get that decision, it just blew my mind. And, and I thought, I can't, I don't know if I can cope with this happening every game. And it got to the stage where I'm watching games and when the goal goes in, instead of jumping up straight, I'm looking at the scoreboard. I'm sat in my chair looking at the scoreboard. People around me might be jumping up and I'm thinking, you might be jumping up too early. <laughs> it got... That's how it got to me. And I'm thinking, this isn't football. This is, it's taking the the buzz and the passion out of it for me. Um, it's just some of the decisions, it's the inconsistency of it as well that drives me mad. So in theory, it works because obviously a lot of people before VAR came in said, we want VAR, we want the decisions to be right. We want to take away any suggestion of biasedness from referees, you know, the corruption of referees, all, all sorts of things were thrown out. Now we, in theory, have the perfect system and you're still not happy. No. Well, I think the system probably works. I think it's the people who are manning it are probably not making the right decisions for me. Um, whether I'm right or wrong is, is up for debate. Um, but... It says video assistant referee. They're not assistant. They're running the game. They're the ones making the decision. They're the ones telling the man in the middle, you, you're wrong or you're right or whatever. But And the fact that they never went and reviewed it on a screen, they might be doing that now, but they weren't doing it at, at, at the beginning. And, oh, yeah, it, it's just not 
football for me. It's just, it really, like, before all this COVID thing, I was rapidly falling out of love with the game. And for me, that's that's massive because I've been, I went to my first match in 76 and I've been a season ticket holder for as many years as you can remember. I've been every stand in every ground. And, but for an assistant sat in a box somewhere in wherever it is, Stockley Park or whatever, to be running the game, it's just not football for me. It's just, it really took it out. And to be offside by a big toe, I just, I just find just bonkers. I, th- I think you should give the advantage to the attacking team. Um, drawing all these lines on a screen and you now it's just, it's not for me, to be honest, you know. VAR is going to destroy the game that's already got a question mark over it. And, and the reason I think that, Ian, is because of the inconsistency. You know, so the players, for instance, handballs and penalties. So where are you going to put your hand? Where it contacts you? And an inconsistency of whoever's looking at the screen. It's always a person that's looking at the screen has got to make that decision. You know, not not what I get is all oh, the going on for the age. It's another person looking at the same thing that the pundits have looked at, the fans have looked at, the referees looked at. We're just waiting for a confirmation. So of, is it the that. AR that's wrong, or is it the rule that's wrong? Um, I think VAR is wrong. I don't think the game needs that. I, it's, if it was consistent, like if you look at Hawkeye in, in, in um, tennis, okay, they get that spot on. It's spot on. 99.9.9% it's spot on. This isn't. This isn't. It's got issues in it. And to me, don't bring a system into, into play if there's issues with it. Oh, it's great if we're losing 1-0. And, sorry, Losing, we get a penalty in the last minute. VAR is lovely, then it's great. Oh, we got a penalty, but no, I'd rather go to the way that I know football as the referee, the linesman, or the officials make the decision, and we just have to back, take it on the chin and move on. Tal, you're an obsessed football fan like me, you go to yeah. games all the time. Is VAR enough potentially to stop you going, or will you just go and moan about it? Um. Listen, I compare, no, no, I dare not say that. No, the wife's very similar, you know, 23 years. Um, I put up with her and I would have to put up with VAR if it was to be introduced into the game because I love my city too much to not be in my, in my position to watch. Yes, I might disagree with some of the issues, but I think we're going to have to, we're going to get told to shut up and put up and that's what's going to happen. If you don't want to go, don't go, but shut up and put up if you're coming to the game. Horrible, but it is going to be the way I see it. And again, so, it's my personal views. So before VAR came in, um, were you one of those who said, you know, we've got all these cameras around the stadium, why aren't we using them? We should be bringing VAR in. Or did you not want it right from the beginning? I think, well, I, I'm a, like, again, you see, when you look at technology that's coming to the world, we grew up in a, a, a non-technology uh, era, all of a sudden technology. If it's correct, like Hawkeye, then I'm I'm all for it. But it's the problem I've got with it is, is there's flaws in it, and you can't introduce something to somebody if it's got flaws in it. You look at these driverless cars they're going on about. There's flaws in them. You know, you look at sat navigation. There's flaws in them. You know, get it concrete. Now, like I say, Hawkeye is 99.9% spot on. VAR streets away. They're individuals making decisions. It's not a computer. It's an individual who's just thinking, you know, they've got to make it quick. And look at the time it takes to make a decision. Look at the injury time at the end of an average game. That Brighton game the other week when Manchester United um, technically drew a game and then the whistle was blown and then VAR bought them back. That's just going to kill the game if there's anything left in it. I mean, you know... So, yeah, um, I'm just going to be one of these, a bit like yourself, probably. Just shut up and put up. Last season, been at matches. It was awful. You didn't know what was going on. Um, hate, hated it. That Tottenham uh, killer that you referred to in the in the podcast this week, uh, I can remember exactly how I felt. I was out with my family as well. Uh, so I can relate perfectly to how badly VAR 
can affect you in the stadium. As we're now sofa based, I can see why the TV folks like it. It doesn't it doesn't um, impact on you very much. There's a few delays. Um, I think it's better that they're actually going to the pitch side, making decisions, not that it's been made remotely. But in the end, I think is it a question of the interpretation of the rule, particularly handball, particularly offside, uh, penalties, people diving, uh, whether or not VAR should be used to give people cards retrospectively for diving. I think it's um, it's here to stay. And if I'm honest, I'd rather we didn't have it all. I just wish we'd go back to having the uh, debate about the decisions after the match and having some go for us and some against us. Will it ever stop you going then? If, if ever we're back inside the stadiums and there's any sort of normality, would VAR ever be enough to stop you? I think it might, yeah. I think if things were, were as uh, sterile and as horrible as they were, as I felt once or twice last season, yeah, I think it. I think it was getting a bit. Uh, it was getting a bit troublesome, you know, last season. So, I think if they can improve it um, and share with fans in the stadium more what's going on, you know, at home, you know what's going on, but you don't in the ground. So, I think unless they tackle that, yeah, I could see it becoming a problem. They've managed it in other sports. I'm sure they can do it as well in football. A lot of people all say it takes the emotion out and the, the match-going fan. It might not, as you say, make much difference to somebody watching on TV where you're perhaps a little less emotional, but in the stadium, it just yeah. it just extinguishes that moment, doesn't it? Yeah, but we had that last season. You could see last season, after goals were scored, we're all looking and seeing whether or not there's a reason why it's not going to be given. And you don't realise they're going back six or seven plays. Um, and you're just left in the stadium with, with no idea of what's going on. So, um, yeah, I think it does take the emotion out. Imagine the idea of a goal being scored and you erupting um, and then the linesman puts his flag up 10 seconds after the goal's gone in, and which is what they're doing now. And no one cares because there's no one in the stadium. So, yeah, I think it's uh, definitely taking the emotion out. But we don't we don't feel or see that because we're not we're not part of the entertainment anymore. We're watching it through through a glass lens. For most fans, the talking points about football matches is not how well a team played or how badly. It was always about the referees' decisions. Um, and, and fundamentally, I feel that the, the administrators don't trust the referees to arrive at the, the right decision now because they're breaking it right down to the minutia where they're slowing it so quickly that in real time, you make a decision. And, and, and I'll say this, you know, the referees make honest decisions in... And they don't, they don't, there's no maliciousness in what they do. They, they, they adjudicate on what they see. And this nonsense of stopping the game and, you know, opening it up and, and, and getting them to reverse decisions is an absolute nonsense. You think it, that it could ultimately spoil the game and drive people away from it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, as I said earlier, you know, when you go to a game of football, everybody wants to talk about it afterwards. And, and the referees are part of the game. And now I just think they're being alienated. I think they're being castigated. I think they're being judged. And more importantly, I think they're, they're, they've taken away their judgment on a football decision. Um, and it's not good for the game. It's not good for the referees because, you know, with the way social media is today, you know, everybody gets a bit of stick on it if you put something contentious up there. And I just think that uh, I really feel sorry for the referees today because they're not being allowed to do the job to the best of their ability. What about the players? You were a player. I mean, would you have liked to have played in the era of VAR? Well, I had a friend of mine uh, look at one of the old tapes. In fact, I'll tell you the game it was. It was the 5-1 game against Charlton at Main Road. And in the first 20 minutes, there was 11 sending it off and 20 bookings under today's rules. And that wasn't that wasn't a physical game. But that is that not is that not a difference in the rules though? It's not VAR that's there's caused no that. rules, there's laws. No, no, no. Let's get right. There's no rules in football. There are laws, right? Um, and it's and it's exactly the same. But there's always been the thirteenth law, which was the referee's common sense, and that for me has been taken away from them. That's what VAR's done. It's took common sense Absolutely. away. I think VAR 
Um, I, I can get I get the premise of they could be brought in when it's when it's a really obvious decision that's been missed. I, I understand that, but you know it's like the offside. You, it's not your nose that's offside. It should be your feet. You know, um, the ball hits your hand. Whether it's and this this is you know there's been blatant penalty kicks this year where they haven't been given them. Um, I just think that let's put it this way: uh, it's not VAR's fault. It's the idiots that are watching it. So you're not a fan? <laughs> no, no. If I'm being honest, I think it's brought it's brought more complications to the game. There was nothing wrong with the game before, Ian. I mean, there's a lot of different things involved with VAR, for notably all the different law changes, um, and and I'm not going to go through them a fine tooth comb. You know, hand your handball your offsides, um, just to name two things, penalty kicks. I understand the penalty kicks going back if it is a penalty kick. I understand that because that's a game-changing situation. And I know people say that, hold on, offsides is a game-changing. There was nothing wrong with the offsides before. There's nothing wrong with that before because you give the officials the, the understanding with the naked eye and everybody's governed by that. So... All of a sudden now, you've got people that, A, can't work the system. They can't work the mechanics of it. They can't work the machines because the population of people watching a game of footy that come away and go, I'm just trying to think now right off the top of my head, see the red card, Man United, um, the, other, the, the, the other night, Tottenham. Was it Lalana and Marshall? Talking about, yeah. the, talking about the noisy neighbours. Anyway, talking about them. Now, that's not a red card, is it? I mean, he's gone down. He's got a tap on the face. He's gone down. Now, if the referee looks at it, and he's looked at it, or I presume he has, it's a yellow card, if anything, because they've raised their hands, but not to the detriment that you send somebody off. And it's, it's been sensible as well as. And too many times, the good thing is this season, and is, we're in three or four games, there's not been a lot of hullabaloo, for a better word, in relation to VAR, causing problems or issues because last season it was a minefield there was so many times you know on a Saturday night or a Sunday morning used to I was expecting a TV program to be created for all the VAR clips from the, the, the previous day because there's so many and there was nothing wrong I mean you can't tackle you're not allowed to tackle anymore here because the follow-through is deemed uh, inappropriate is deemed as um, well. What do what do they, what do they call it? They say that you could cause harm, and but it's up. It's part of the game, Ian. It's so, not. So is the all. problem with VAR itself, or is it the rules that are that are wrong? I think I think, and I've warmed to the technicality of what they're using to 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 decipher what's right and what's wrong. It's the people. I mean, um, on the, there was there was something again. I, I can't recall. There's so many different issues. So many times it's been on TV. It's Peter Walton, and he would not go. He was on television, and everybody, including everybody in the studio, and it might have been, you know, it might have been one of the big four. It might have been a, a city, a city game, or a Liverpool game, or a United game. But there was some big guy, big big hitters in that studio. And they all agreed. So there might have been a United man with a Liverpool man or a Liverpool man with a United or whatever. They all agreed. But Peter Walton didn't. And that's where I think that's just been pig-headed in the whole, in the whole situation because we all seen it. The public seen it. The punters seen it. The, the, the Sky TV or BT Sports or whoever it is, they all seen it. The BBC seen it. But Peter Walton wouldn't go with it because it would deemed, he would be deemed as going against his... His, his body of, you know, his referees and everything else. But, I mean... Imagine if VAR had come in, it probably wouldn't... I would have been knackered, I would never have had a career. But then again, when you're, when you're coming through and you're developing as a footballer in my era, then that was part and parcel of it. So, uh, part and parcel of it. So you, you adhere to that and it's in your head and you know what's right and what's wrong and what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do. People have said to me, would you be able to play? Well, well, it's a different game. You're not allowed to tackle. You can't tackle. I mean, 
So many times, players have gone through the ball and they go through the man. And that's in, in my day, great tackle. Win the ball, win the man. Fair, clean, fair, everything. Good, great tackle. It's, it's a perfect tackle. The perfect tackle nowadays would be a red card. And it's wrong. So now we've opened up this can of worms with good intentions and all of a sudden it's been misconstrued and misused to the point where now fans are now saying we don't we don't want what it. is your view then as a as a fan who watches a lot of games on television because obviously you're based in the states yeah. would it put you off the ar either coming over to england when you can do again and watching games or continuing to be a big fan as you are on tv or do you just moan about it and just accept it as you know what it is so I, I've been fortunate enough to be in the stadium at the Etihad when VAR was used a couple of times, a couple of games. And I will say that it's a stark difference. It's almost unfair on the fans in the stadium because you're out there, you don't know what the hell's going on. There's no communication. There's a break in play and you're waiting for the verdict. And you're saying, what the hell's going to do? We celebrate? Do we not celebrate? Now, when you're at home, you can see the reviews, you can see the reruns, you can see the offside line, you can see the lines they're drawing on the field, you can see all those things that are happening because that's been sent to us or fed to us by the producers. So there has to be a way in which it's done in cricket, it's done in rugby, where the fans can at least see what's going on or hear what's going on from the officials uh, during the game to at least give some context. Now, in the MLS, I will say in the MLS that VAR has been successful for the most part. Maybe it's because we're used to it in the NFL, we're used to it in basketball. We're used to it in some games that we play in the U.S. People are accustomed to having a review of a play in a game on the spot with an explanation from the referee. Now, in the NFL, the referee has to explain the review of the play that he saw or didn't see. So it's instantaneous, not just to us at home, but also to people in the stadium. And you get to see it, you get to hear it, you get to understand it. Even if you don't agree, at least you have an explanation. You make some very, very good points, and, right. and that's that's what you bring to the table in this conversation. Right. What I would say, though, as uh, and this isn't meant to be anti-American, but a lot of the American sports that you talk about, like baseball, um, are stop-start games, right. whereas football is all about, certainly from my experience as a spectator in the stadium, is all about that moment. And that moment used to be instantaneous. Right. So whilst, yes, I can understand why you say that, um, getting people to explain to you in the stadium what's going on clearly would be of massive benefit. It still means that rather than that instant success, that instant, yes, we've scored, or, oh, no, it's been ruled out because you see the flag go up straight away, that's gone, that instantaneous bit. Right. Does that matter? It, it matters. I mean, I think the the, the flow and the ever, the ever flow of football is what makes it exciting. And you look at the Harry Kane goal last week, right, where uh, he was fouled and then uh, he put the ball down and passed it to, to Sonny and Sonny scored the goal. That was within like three or four seconds. So that 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 should continue on. But for the big calls, for the big handball calls or for the big foul calls, there has to be some sort of way to communicate to people who are waiting for the VAR decision at some point to explain either which way. Uh, but for the for the little calls, I would say, yeah, let it roll on. Like now, for example, the offside rule with the linesman, right? They're now, they're now required to put the, the, the flags down until the goal is scored. And then you know it's offside because you can see that it's offside. Now, in the stadium, I'm assuming that you still wouldn't know that that was offside. But at home, you would know, right? So there's this, there's this drive to get perfection in the game, but at, at what cost, right? At what cost? Think about what happened with the Champions League versus uh, Spurs when the ball hit um, Laurenti on the arm. We all saw that that was wrong. Even the referee in the, in the, in the, uh, at the stadium didn't see the handball. We saw it at home. So how can VAR miss that? So it throws up more issues around, you know, potential bias or potential um, mismanagement than, than it solves. There's some real issues. What's a handball? You know, uh, uh, Trent Alexander handles the ball in the penalty area versus Liverpool last year. Is that a handball? Well, <laughs> Lorente did it, right, <clears throat> for us against, against Spurs. Is that a handball? So, you know, we have to be consistent in the way we apply the law or the rule or the officiating. And it's going to take time to get to that point, in my opinion. Yeah. Dislike VAR since it came in because it, it changed the game. It was unrecognisable from, from the sport that, that I love and, and we all love, the passionate one where um, there's very few stoppages over 95 minutes. Uh, suddenly we were finding 
uh, stoppages of, of two minutes, three minutes sometimes, while uh, decisions were being made. Decisions that really a lot of us didn't really argue about for, for the last 30, 40 years, uh, even, even if they were slightly wrong. Uh, suddenly the game was completely different. You know, you go back to um, great, great goals, you know, match winning goals from 40 years ago, whatever, you know, I mean, this wouldn't have been called off by far, but, you know, Paul Power uh, free kick at Villa Park in the semi-final in 1981, things like that. And the explosion on the terraces was unbelievable. Um, obviously, that's the sort of goal that wouldn't be, wouldn't be called off now um, by VAR, but it's that kind of passion that we're still losing even though we're getting the decisions correct, and I'm backtracking a little bit on what I said earlier, um, still when goals are scored, you do have that moment of, of, of passion, but then you suddenly say to yourself, just a minute, this might be called off yet. And that, that shouldn't come into sport, shouldn't come into football anyway, not when you've been brought up on really it being passion being the number one criteria for why you follow football. Um, but yeah, and those decisions that you said, which were you know, the armpit and things like that, and, I mean, that just turned it into a mockery, really. Um, nobody really wants to go into that kind of minor detail. Um, yeah, I mean, if it's offside, it's offside. And as long as um, the decisions can be taken without stopping the game, then, you know, we can live with that. But it's, we need to find a way of being able to maintain the passion of the game while getting the benefit of, of VAR's accuracy. And how they do that, I don't know. But if it's at the expense of the passion, then I'd rather get the decisions slightly wrong and keep the passion. Could VAR ever drive you away from football if it's not administered no. correctly? No, it couldn't, Ian. Um, I've, I've had that... Uh, I've had that sort of debate with myself and with other people um, over the last couple of years. And if it was going to drive me away, it would have driven me away in that first what, 12, 12 months, first 18 months. Um, I've enjoyed it more of late when the stoppages haven't been happening. It was the stoppages that really, really killed me. And if I can survive that Champions League quarterfinal against Spurs and what happened there, then I, I can survive anything. I just think it spoils the game, especially... You know, you're waiting for a goal to go in and you've got to wait till kick-off to find out if your team's actually scored. Um, it just I don't understand how it can work in the likes of cricket and rugby, yet it can't work in football. Could it ever drive you away from City in football? No. No, I'd never stop going to watch City. Never, nothing had ever stopped me watching it. It just... It just irritates me, it just annoys me. And I wish it had never been brought into the Premier League. But if we've got to put up with it, we've got to put up with it. But it never stopped me watching football, no. So VAR, a very uh, contentious, much debated issue, the first half of this week's podcast. Thanks very much again to charleslouis.co.uk, the sponsors of the podcast. Without them, we wouldn't be here and doing this, so big shout out to them. Um, but now we're going to talk about how football returns, in what form. Will you be as enthusiastic to go back as you were beforehand? Uh, will it not make any difference to you? Why will you feel about going back in pretty much empty stadiums, maybe wearing masks? In fact, will football ever be the same again? Maybe I'm being overly dramatic. But here are the views of a whole load of people, once again including Colin Hendry and Jim Melrose. And Jim has one or two controversial things to say as well. Um, so what's going to happen in the future? How is football going to return? I initially disagreed with football coming back when it did. Because at the time, I was having a lot of raw issues family-wise, you know, because I've got a very sick granddaughter who's got uh, blood cancer and stuff. So, and I couldn't see her. And because of that, I, I disagreed with football coming back when it did. I understand why it's come back, because for a lot of people's mental health, it obviously works. Um, and I, I do watch it now, but I don't, I don't feel the same excitement with an empty ground um letting fans back in i can't see fans ever coming back into grounds not like it used to be until there's vaccines and how long is that going to be you, you could be you might never get a vaccine then then what happens um 
And he, even if they let him in, say, I don't know, I don't, I've not looked to the figures, but is it something like 14,000 they might let in City if, if whatever? Even if you did that, I don't know if they'll manage it under the stands in the bars and in the toilets and things like that. Um, I'd be slightly concerned about it, but um, that's for other people to, to make their minds up about. But I wouldn't, I'd feel safe to an extent if I'm sat, you know, two metres away from people. And um, But I wouldn't like to be in a, you know, as you leave in the ground or, like you say, going to toilets and things like that, I'd feel wary of of uh, my surroundings. But everyone's different, aren't they? Some people are really taking this seriously and other people are so blasé about it. Um I know this is a hypothetical question, but if if we were in a position where that vaccine had happened and every everything was safe again, yeah, do you think that everybody would just instantly return? We'd be back to full crowds again, even with the magic vaccine, or do you think this long period of time without being able to attend games, the the monetary issues that might come from unemployment, um, yeah. you know, the, the the reality of the cost of what football is. Do you think it's changed people? Has it changed you? Um, I think it will change a lot of people um, because it's like me. I, I work away all week. Um, I don't see my wife and my daughter hardly. Monday to Friday, I see them at weekends. That's That's my family time. And even though I don't look really old... <laughs> I've got five grandkids, um, you know, um, and weekend is, is like, it's family time. And I was spending my weekend at the football. So, and now because of what's happened, I've, I'm, you know, I'm spending time at home with the family. And even though I've only, I've only seen my granddaughter a couple of times since all this kicked off, purely because of her condition and everyone's scared to death of because uh, she's had bone marrow and all that lot. Um, so people are, are now spending time with the family and, and realising it's an important time spending it with the family. And, the, and other people have started finding other hobbies. And um, so I think it will be a slow process. I think initially they, they might flood back on the first game but I'm not so sure long term I think this might do a lot of damage to football um, because as you realised before all this kicked off there are always empty seats at, um, at the Etihad anyway which that used to drive me mad because there were a lot of people rightly or wrongly they had season tickets and they might live abroad or whatever and only come when they can so that seat's empty and it don't look good on telly, does it? And, you know, the, all the old jokes with empty, I don't know, that rubbish. It, that used to drive me up the wall. But no, I think it's it's going to be an hard road to come back from all this, I think. Um, I don't know, to be honest. <laughs> I think football going forward is, is going to be a major disappointment for a lot of people because during whether we find a vaccine today, tomorrow, next year, I think there's at least a two to three years chance of football not being the way we know it as, you know, sitting next to each other, having a laugh with our friends, not wearing masks, um, people losing their jobs may not be able to go to football, people, are, you know, it's such an impact on the whole game itself. I mean, but the way I look at it, I, you know, I work in the transportation business and um, I look at the aeroplanes, for instance, you know, everybody's sat on an aeroplane with a mask on. Right, that's not social distancing, and they're up there for two to three to four to five to seven hours at a trip. And I think for the financial impact it's going to have on some of the smaller clubs, they must find a way whether it's a row, then a gap of five rows, then a row, and a gap of five rows, and, and you know, to, to introduce it back into to, to going live. Because personally, I, I I'm ready to go back tomorrow. I understand COVID-19 is an impact on most people's lives. It's affected most people. Um, but to me, the game's going to take a massive, you know, 
how many people are going to be allowed in a corporate box? Well, I mean, I use City as an example, the Tunnel Club. What's going to happen to the Tunnel Club? Because you can't have 10 people in a Tunnel Club. It's financially not viable. The Tunnel Club was there as a, as a moneymaker. Um, and, and it's things like that. And I think the game's going to take at least possibly two to three years to recover. Maybe longer. Without swimming, overly dramatic, do you think football as we knew it is finished or do you think it will eventually be just as we remember it? It eventually will be like that. But like I say to you, the time scale is worrying two to three years. You know, as you know, I've got my family that we all sit together uh, and we're a bubble. So but we'll go and we'll sit together. But what guarantees me that people are going to be sat next to me or is there going to be a gap again or is my seat going to change? The only thing that'll ever destroy me from going to City is it's like my home. Them seats have been my home for years, from Main Road, like for like, to, to the Etihad, like for like. I don't want to sit anywhere else. I want to sit. It's not when I come home, the kids know Dad's sofa. That's Dad's sofa. <laughs> that's Dad's sofa. Get off Dad's sofa. And that's how I feel about City. I think it's going to be a long time before we can, um, you know, hug and do what we, we, we've always... Oh no, when we score, it's a natural instinct. You're going to stand up and go, you know, and touch the next person or, you know, high-five the person next to you. Is that all going to stop? You know, we just don't know. If you're talking about going to the match, to a Premier League game or a Champions League game, I think we're talking about uh, a long time before we'll have full stadium. So if that isn't everybody's cup of tea, and in my case, it's not. Um, I think that, you know, having a space to yourself with uh, no one near you for, uh, for for two metres or whatever um, isn't much fun. And then getting in and out of the ground, all the, all, all the measures that are going to have to be taken. I'm not, I'm not really sure I'm up for that, to be honest. Um, I think I'm probably going to find other ways to enjoy sport in the interim period. Um, you know, watching my local rugby team, I want to watch some maybe of the, the lower league teams in, in soccer. Maybe take up fishing. You never know. But I think what people are going to do is they're going to find something else uh, because it won't be what you what you were enjoying way back when. Um, whether that ultimately means that you you lose, I think, the, the passion for it. I'm, I'm not really sure. I think I'm pretty fickle. And I think I'd go back tomorrow if we could go back to March, to be honest. Um, that wouldn't... I don't think that's a, that's a question. So do you not think that there will be, given the financial implications of people losing jobs and the uncertainty of, of paying for season tickets and things like that will affect crowds? you think that there will be the second that that magic moment happens when the vaccine is distributed to us all, that there'll be 55,000 at no. Etihad and 76,000 at Old Trafford and it'll just be like that? No, because I think a lot of people are going to be thinking twice about whether they want to be vaccinated. They're going to wait and see. Um, so I think you're really only talking about the hardcore making every effort they can if they're, if they're physically able and, and economically uh, sound to, to be able to do that. So the idea of full stadiums, I think, is a long way away. Ian. Football as we know it is over? Or is that too dramatic? Uh, no, no, no. I mean, I mean we even just the, the game on Sunday... I was, as much as I could be engaged in the game, you know, just really wanted to, to watch what was a great game of football with things that annoyed me and things that I thought were great. So if that's what football is for now, that's what it'll have to be. I think there's going to be a natural cull. And I think this natural cull has been, um, been... We've been waiting for this for a long time. There are a number of clubs who are within the pyramid system who just exist and actually contribute nothing to the game. Um, so either they go out of business or you form a Premier Leagues one and two and the, team, and, and the teams that are in those two leagues should adopt a smaller team where they can send their academy kids out to play proper football because a lot of these kids now, uh, academy football for me is boys club football when I was a boy. When I was 16 when I get into Patrick Thistle's first team, you never see that happening now. We boy Foden, oh, great player, but he is one of very few who actually make that step up from academy into into the first team. What is, what's, what's Phil now? 20? When I was 20, I had 140 games under my belt. Okay, it was a different era. I accept that. 
But you know, I just think that the, the academy system is not encouraging young players to come through quickly. Um, you have to put them in an environment where they're playing with men. And for me, a lot of academy footballers are just young boys. You know, that's quite a controversial statement you've made there. I know you played at, at Macclesfield and uh, you were involved potentially in a in a takeover at Stockport County at one time. And, and I know you've, you've, I think you played for Kurs and Ashton as well, uh, right at the end of your career. And you, you're talking about clubs, you know, if they go, they go, uh, which it, it's hard to listen to that as somebody who cares about those clubs. But that's your feeling, is it? I, I'm not talking about your Ashton, your Kurs and Ashton's, and, your, and I'm talking about your, your, your league clubs in Division 1 and 2. That's where the cull's got to be, because they're directly involved in the pyramid. You know, down the line, you have to... The Premier League for many years, um, and I've said this to you before, Ian, that football's like any business. To get to the top, you need to start at the bottom. There, are, there is no bottom now. Even in Scotland, grassroots football is virtually non-existent. They took a system that was working well and broke it. You know, Scotland produced a lot of players in the 70s and the 80s. Now there's very few players that are Scottish-bred that play in English Premier League of any note. Um, whereas in the 80s, I mean, Manchester City was full of Scots. Tommy Hutchison, Asa, um, you know. And I just think that they should be, and if they're going to invest in it, they should invest in grassroots and get kids playing again. You know, because that, that, that talent pool is shrinking every year. You know, as you well know, there's less than 1% make it to play professional football or get a chance to play professional football. But 1% of 4 million kids is a lot better than 1% of a million kids. And that's where I think that football should, they should really look at the structure and start investing. Not coaching kids, but letting them play football. Let them, let them have a love of playing so that they have the necessary skills to make that next step. Instead of taking kids in at five, six, seven, and eight into professional clubs, nonsense. Nonsense. If, you, if you're suggesting that, that Macclesfield falling by the wayside, Berry falling by the wayside, and, and others as well in, in leagues one and two, that's really going to hurt people who support those teams and people it who is. work at those what, teams. What, I'm saying, what I said was that, that, that you should form two Premier Leagues and every Premier League club should adopt one of these kid, one of these clubs. And they should be financially responsible because the connection between Macclesfield and, and, and Berry is impropriety or financial shenanigans by by the owners. And you know, and I'm not saying anything happened dishonestly, but the club wasn't run properly. And therefore they got to a stage where they were foreclosed because they either owed the HMRC money or they owed creditors money, but the bills weren't being paid. Now what you know you have to look at that and that will happen to a number of clubs because a lot of the small clubs depend on the three or the four thousand people that come through the gate to keep them going, and that's not happening. In the bigger picture then, do you see a day not too far away when your beloved Rangers and hopefully Manchester City, who I know you cared about when you were a player there as well, um, will survive, will have full capacity crowds again, people hugging and, and everything back to, to normal? Or do you think those days either will be a long time coming or may never even return? I, I think this virus is around, around for a long time. And I think the only way we're going to beat it is to is to understand it, understand how it behaves, and more importantly, understand how it transmits between people. And and you know, and the obvious answer here is is that and it, I, funny I mentioned this today that the way forward is for people to come into the ground with their hands sanitised and wear a mask because the infection goes in through your respiratory tract. So if you keep your hands clean and you keep away from your mouth and you don't cough in anybody's direction, then that is. That is going to be the way forward. But the problem I've got at the moment, there's so many experts giving conflicting reports on how to deal with this. There's no uniformity. So there's not an easy answer in. Yeah, and we're part of the same. I think we're part of a couple of WhatsApp groups. And, you know, the Blues and Business group, um, somebody mentioned about having the games being back live to the Etihad and having an ex-pro in there talking, an ex-City player in there talking about the game and, and I thought that would have been done by now. I actually thought, you know, where the the for for a bit of income for the football club and, and generating the hubbub around the stadium as well as so there is some people coming in and coming out. And because the 
these these rooms are big enough to accommodate social distancing and etc so it's possible and and i i just thought that would have been done by now but it's going to take a long time i mean i'm watching games um in europe at the minute in germany uh, in france games i watch a lot of the, the french football in the german bundesliga and they've got fans in and they're all separate they're all split up from in distances but the thing about who who gets in and who doesn't get in you know you, just because you pay more money shouldn't really allow you to have the choice over the man that has been and followed his team for 30 40 years who's paid the same as he's got this well since seatings came in he's had the same seat and it might be the bog standard seat price but he's been that he's been in that seat for 30 years and why should he be deemed to be the one that's not getting into see the game whereas somebody that's prepared to pay three times the amount so you've got that issue i think that but it's the fans well, the games i mean God only knows how a footballer can play. I mean, my son's playing tonight for St. Johnson against Kelty Hearts in the Cup, and there's no crowd going to be there. And I said to him, "How have you felt between?" He said, "It's great. It's just like it's like a pre-match. It's like a pre-season match, but as soon as the game starts, you realise your adrenaline takes over that you're in a proper match. There's just no crowd. There's no. There's nothing from the sidelines where an ooh and an ah, except through the tannoys and through Sky TV. They've tried to." They've tried to, to, to put that forward, but it's just not the same. And unless, unless you know, and it's, this is completely out with a football, um, unless we have a vaccine and it comes along pretty soon, you know, the, the country and the world is going to be a different place for quite a while. And it's, it's sad. It's sad. And, and again, I mean, the government coming away from football, the government have got the problems because I'm not a politician. I'm not a politician. But it doesn't matter who's in charge at this minute in time. You're going to do some things right and you're going to do something wrong. And the other people, the other, the other parties are all going to jump on and say, we should have done this, we should have done that. Because it's easy to say that, isn't it? You know, it's easy to say that in football as well, as I should have picked this team, I should have selected them. And hindsight's a great thing. But um, it's, it, is, it is sad. It is sad. And not it's not around the corner. That's the disappointing thing. It's not going to be... Well, certainly I'm going to be this side of Christmas, not now, I wouldn't think, because there are issues in Scotland and there are issues in Scot in England as well as where um, they have semi-lockdowns and some of the areas are tightening up even more. It's just surreal. It's, it's, it's crazy. And, and as I say, I mean, players playing in, in that sort of arenas, uh, situations, it's got to be different. It's got to be far, far different. And... You know, again, I know that the TV companies that are covering the games are all trying to recreate a bit of an atmosphere within the grounds and even the stadiums themselves, the retrospective stadiums, they're all trying to bring the sound through the tannoy for the sake of the, for the people watching the game at home who have got the choice of switching off or switching on. I'd rather have it on because it's a little bit more like real, realistic, I would have said. Um, but for the players there, it's... It's, it's a, again, you've got something coming through the tanner when you're playing football and it's the noise of a crowd. And it's, and as, as my son had said to me, he said, it's nothing like a crowd because it sounds different, but it is a crowd coming through a tannoy. And it, But they've got to adapt to that. You know, it's, it's they're in that situation at the minute, the players, um, for the fans, it's just so disappointing. And I mean, I work in week to a lot of people in, the, in, in, um, in a lot of different countries was the Saturday afternoon, either at the radio at three o'clock, listen to the team playing away from home, or at the stadium of the team they support. That was their working week, and the icing on the cake was the game at 3pm on a Saturday. And, and we know as well that 3pm games are now few and far between because of TV rights and everything else, but they still had something to look forward to at the end of the week. In Germany, they have fans in the stadium, in some stadiums. I watched the Dortmund game the other day. There were fans. I watched the game, I think it was Hoffenheim against Bayern Munich. There were fans. So it all depends on how the country manages this crisis. will determine how fans get back in the stadium. I think the game against Sevilla and the Champions League in the Super Cup, there were fans in Europe, the European game. So it all depends on how we manage um, the situation with COVID-19. I don't understand how I heard that in the UK that uh, people are allowed to go to the cinema and enclosed space, but I'm not allowed to go to the stadium. 
Well, how does that make any sense, right? I mean, here in the U.S., we are allowed to play football under 12, under 16, under 18. They're actually playing because it's open air. There are rules that we have to abide by, right? Social distancing, wearing a mask, no handshakes, sanitizers, temperature checks. We have all those things. We still play week in, week out. I have practice four times a week, but I'm masked. I'm coaching. So the rules that we have to abide by, and those rules are in place, absolutely have fans at the stadium. Maybe not, maybe not 50,000, maybe 5,000, maybe 10,000, right? And gradually increase that over time. But there has to be a point where we have fans back in the stadium. Life has to go on in a measured, in a respectful, in a safe way that keeps uh, the clubs up, keeps fans engaged. If not, we'll go back to what I saw in Star Trek two years ago, right? Which is basically having, a, a, I saw a, a, a Star Trek episode where they had two wrestlers somewhere in the galaxy and was beamed across the whole galaxy with no fans. It was all virtual. Who wants to see that? Who wants to see that? No one. So for me, fans have to come back in a safe, respectful way that gets people engaged, gets them involved, has get back the fan experience, have people come through the turnstiles to create revenue, keep jobs, and open up the economy again safely. When's the next time, Carl, you realistically think you're going to be sat in the Etihad Stadium with 55,000 there watching the game? I don't think it'd be till 2022 season, in my opinion. I mean, two things going to happen: either we get the vaccine, we get a vaccine, we either get a solution to cure the, the virus, or it's herd immunity. It's one of those three. But I think it's going to be 2022 until we actually get people back 100% in, in the stadiums. It's it's going to be a long journey. It all depends on how the governments manage this crisis. If we all do what we're required to do, Ian, which is social distance, wash your hands, keep safe. I think we could overcome it. Germany has fans back in the stadium. France has fans back in the stadium. Why can't we do it in England and the US? We can. Even the NFL, Ian, has some fans back in the stadium. It may not be 100,000, 10,000, 5,000. They're back in the stadium, in some stadiums. We can do it. And I just hope that when we come out of this coronavirus, whether it's in a year, two years, um, that, that we're gonna have clubs to go and watch. Like I say, Premier League, yes, we will. Lower down the uh, divisions, I worry for them. Because I saw at close quarters what happened at, at, at Bury and Bolton. And it's very easy, if you're not being run correctly, it's very easy for, for football clubs to, uh, to, to get into dire straits. And, and that's my main, my main fear. I, th I feel that the, the football, I think we'll still fill the stadiums. I think we'll still have fans uh, filling the stadiums and I think that um, even if the product is, is slightly different I think people's natural um, ability to, to adapt to, um, to differences in their sport will see them gradually get used to uh, the new product and um, they'll continue to go. You can never underestimate football fans loyalties. I mean they're born with it and they're not going to lose it. One or two may, and they may make the news because that's the story. Um, but you'll always fill football stadiums. You know, 99% fans, they just, just can't leave it alone. My worry is that there'll be an older generation who at the moment are possibly still staying indoors, frightened to go out, um, even though they're allowed to go to some places. There are people who've lost their jobs, um, whose income has been affected, and people who after a long break of not watching football in stadiums will think, hang on a minute, this is, this is better than actually going to the stadium because it doesn't cost me a fortune. I don't have to pay £10 to park my car. I don't have to be packed on, on a tram or a bus. It's, I don't get soaking wet. I don't have to worry about leaving five minutes before the end. I just worry a little bit that the habit's been broken and that the, the magic of, of attending football has gone. But you're more on the, on the optimistic side, are you? I am, Ian, yeah. Um, I think there's nothing like the feeling of, of match day, um, of waking up and, you know, knowing it's a big, it's a big game. And, and there's only one place to be, and, and that's at the game. It's, it's just magical, and it'll always be that way. I do get what, what you're saying about the older generation. Yeah, of course, you know, the older generation may be um, a little less keen to, to go out, um, especially with coronavirus and the older generation that are, are the most susceptible. But even afterwards, uh, they may get set in the ways and, and find that they prefer to watch it in, in a pub. Um, from a city perspective, I'm sure I read a statistic that said that 
and, and, and if I'm wrong on this, then I apologise, but I'm sure I read that um, there is their average age of City season ticket holders is older than any other fans in the country, probably because they stayed through all the bad times. And when the good times eventually came with Manuel Pellegrini and, and uh, Roberto Mancini and now with Pep Guardiola, that the time when they would have naturally perhaps stopped going to games, they weren't going to stop, were they? So I wonder if we're going to see a, a mass exodus of, of the older fans. Well, I don't know how we've got um, old fans, Ian, as we were only invented in 2008. So obviously we must have younger fans, of course, you know. But seriously, um, yeah, we do. We do have um, an older fan base, um, but whole football um, or Premier League football, the fan base is older. I mean, again, I like you read a, a year or two ago that um, that the average age of, of City old was not only at City but 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 in 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 the Premier League was was in the fifties, um, and in the nineteen seventies, aged fifties. Uh, in the 1970s, the average age was something like 18 or something like that. Um, so, you know, the, it seemed that I think the idea of that story, um, the thread of that story was that it's the same people who have been following their teams throughout the last 40, 50 years. Um, now, cities being a bit older, that's, that's news to me. I, I didn't realise that. Um, I don't know. I can't. I just can't see people not going. I mean, if, if we have got, you know, fans of in the fifty age group, they've they've been loyal since they were what, ten years old, fifteen years old. I can't see them not going. I also can't see um, us not getting new supporters as well. I mean, you know, we've we everybody wants to support a winning team, um, and also the majority of people start supporting the team that they're they're dads and their uncles support so it just stands to reason that you know we'll, we'll, we'll keep a flow of, uh, of supporters coming through I mean where I live in Radcliffe you know you go around in the streets or you go you go to Asda um, you see Manchester City shirts on kids you see them all, all over the place so I have no fears that we that we'll keep a regular fan base we've, we've had a fantastic fan base throughout every period of, of history uh, we're one of only three or four clubs who have had this serious high fan base in every period of history. Um, I think Liverpool have, Arsenal have, um, that, 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 Everton possibly. So there's no reason to think that that's not going to continue if it's, if it's happened since, you know, since the 1900s. People will still be scared. I mean, I'm scared about certain things like, um, I've not, you know, gone and seen friends properly. I've not gone to a pub or anything like that. I've obviously gone back to work. Um, I've had no choice but to go back to work. Um, but obviously, as a nursery, we have had to do everything COVID safe. And fingers crossed, we have done the best that we can for the children that we that we look after and also for our staff. Um, but yeah, there is certain things I'm scared about. But I hope that, like every other business out there, that Manchester City will be able to do it in a COVID safe. And I hope that all other football teams will, especially for the ones who are in the lower leagues, they desperately need fans back. They desperately need the money back in or else they're not going to survive. And fingers crossed, people do return. I would hope that people do return. A lot of people, you know, are fed up of staying in and they need they need the things that they like to do. They need that back in their lives. So I do hope that a big majority do return to the ground. Do you sit there, well, lie there asleep at night dreaming of being in a big crowd again, jumping up and down, celebrating a goal, hugging everybody, which seems at the moment so far away, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, hugs is a big, big thing. I'm, I am a huggy person. <laughs> Um, I do like hugging people um, and it's really weird because obviously I can't hug my friends I've not really been able to hug my family but the children at nursery still need hugs and we've had to give hugs you can't not do that you can't not hug a child so um, at the moment I'm just getting hugs off my little babies at nursery <laughs> 
Um, but yeah, I do miss the camaraderie of football. I've I've made some really good friends um, thanks to football, and I am missing my little group that I have around me. Um, there's a, a elderly couple who sit in front of me, and um, I've not had a chance to find out if they're all right or anything. And I and sometimes I do think about them and how they're getting on because. Um, you know, especially at times like this. But yeah, I've I've really missed my little group of people. You know, me and my dad go together. That's me and my dad thing. Me and my dad have the football, and me and my mum have concerts. So with me and my mum, have not been able to go concerts, and me and my dad haven't been able to go to the football. And yeah, it, it's it's awful that you know we we are missing our little group of people. So yeah, I can't wait to go back to see everyone. And yes, give everyone a hug. <laughs> Well, that's it for this week's uh, Forever Blue podcast. Thanks very much for listening. Really appreciate it. If you haven't already, then subscribe. Uh, there will be video versions of the debates that you've just heard so you can see the people that were speaking and apportion blame or perhaps praise the people when you see the video versions that will be on YouTube in the next couple of days. So if you go to the Forever Blue YouTube channel, then you'll be able to see video versions of the very same debates. There'll be two sections of it posted during the, the coming week. And it's free to subscribe to that as well. And if you click on the little bell, the subscribe thing, when you subscribe, it notifies you when there's new videos. So um, if you do that, then you'll be bang up to date with everything that we do. Thanks very, very much to everybody who's contributed, including Will, who is uh, helping me with things like editing. So I very much appreciate uh, Will's help. In the meantime, no game, of course, uh, right now. City return against Arsenal and we will return with the next podcast on the, well, we'll record it anyway, on the Sunday evening after City play Arsenal um, on Saturday the 17th of October. So in the meantime, um, stay safe and uh, just remember, it's always great to be a blue. <laughs>